Well, welcome Eastridge, uh, wherever you are, whenever you are, uh, whether you're here in the room uh, or on the live stream, we're so glad to get together and so glad that you're here. Uh, let's just sort of dive into the theme of the day and say this, uh, there are times when God allows opportunities to dry up for his people, not to hurt them or to hurt us, but to get us moving in a whole different direction to a whole different place that he wants to do. And we're going to see that to be the case in Elijah's life today. And uh, I think we can see that in our own lives in these days. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, let's put it that way, have been sensing for a long time that the way the culture is going and the way things are going, that the deck is getting stacked more and more against Christians. Now, whether or not we've kind of full-blown on that and, and, it, and it's as much as we feel, we can talk about that some other time. Uh, there are real things that are connected with those feelings and those senses. And then there's the part where we're just, the fact is we're in a place now now that we've never been in our lifetime before in terms of the way the world works and the culture works and everybody's saying that, Christians or not. And so that's kind of all kind of mixed into why we, we sense that, that. But there is some reality that, that things are drying up in certain ways and, you know, questions about whether or not we have uh, as much religious liberty as we used to have or will have as much religious liberty as uh, we used to have and all those sorts of things. But the reality is, is that everybody can agree, Christian or not, that our country in this place where we live needs healing. We're in need of healing. And, and what's interesting about the whole idea of healing is that the Bible talks of conversion or coming to Christ, finding Christ, uh, beginning to follow Christ in his uh, resilient way, considers that a form of healing. And I... I, I um, Read uh, earlier a couple weeks ago uh, about someone who said uh, something interesting about conversion, uh, that when God calls us to convert or to give our lives to him, he asks us to, to convert uh, in three things, three ways, the conversion to him, to the Lord God, to Christ, uh, conversion to his people, the church, and conversion to his cause. And Elijah, what we've seen in his life is he is, 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 has been converted to all three of those things, to his cause and to his, his, uh, God's view of the way the world is and what he's up to in this world. Uh, and and uh, the reality is, is when we do that, when we find ourselves in those three forms of conversion, what we find is that God fills those commitments with his presence. And that's what we're going to see God do today in Elijah's life. You know, I, I got a a promo in, uh, email this, this uh, week, this last week, actually it was last week, and it was the, the first email from the uh, Christian Leadership Development Department of Western Seminary. Uh, Christian Leadership Development, CLD, is a, uh, a department of the school over there at Western Seminary where you can go online, any, all, all of us, any church people, any Christians that want to can go online, take seminary level classes or sign up for those classes and use them in your small groups. You get a, a manual full of questions and so forth and so on. And uh, the reason they sent it to me this time is because I did a class for them on video. These are video classes. I did a, a video class for them uh, before Christmas, and uh, they were promoting it this month. It was the first one that they were promoting in 2021. And um, I'll give you one guess about who the class was about. It was in the theology department, and, and uh, the theology aspect of CLD. And so, um, but it was about C.S. Lewis and Friends, 
Uh, Tolkien, Dorothy Sayers, different, uh, the whole group of the friends there got me thinking about this. And I, I know you think I think about them all the time, but no, I try to think about Jesus all the time. And I hadn't thought about that since I did the class. And, and it, but it reminded me, again, as we're going through what we're going through in the culture in 2020s, bleeding into 2021, really bleeding into 2021. And, and uh, you know, just as, as we're thinking about all that, I thought about those guys because they were living in a time of great uh, change for the world and for the Christians. Because the, it, it was the first what you could call post-Christian culture in many ways. Uh, and the, the deck was being stacked more and more against Christians, and including in Oxford. And yet, by the way they lived their lives, something happened that transformed Oxford and the country, and we're still talking about them around the world. And, and I was thinking about that, and, and they weren't theologians. I mean, they were brilliant men in their own disciplines, but none of them were theologians. And, and Dorothy Sayer was, uh, was a, a great theologian in her own right, but she wasn't trained as a theologian. And... and uh, they weren't great preachers. I mean, C.S. Lewis preached um, uh, uh, one sermon that was amazing. I mean, I think it was the best sermon of tw- uh, the uh, 20th century. Maybe the best sermon since Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you could, you could argue with that. Of course, you'd be wrong. But um, <laughs> it's the way to glory if you care. But the, the, um, they, weren't, they weren't, you know, in all the, they, they, they had strong devotional worshipful lives. That's all the evidence they simply lived into their faith. And they had such faith that they believed that God was up to something in their world. And that, that uh, God's revelation story deserved to be told and to lived out in their lives. In fact, Lewis and Tolkien in particular, but including Sayers and all these, and Charles Williams, other friends of theirs, they actually put into their story, we, we find that later on, they actually put into their story the story of God that runs through the Bible. And that was the background for the stories they wrote. That, be, that went around the globe. And we're still talking about those stories. We're still watching them in the movies. That are, they're trying to remake them. And it, it's just, it's, it's stunning to me that that happened. And, and I wonder if that's maybe not something that God wants to do in our time. I mean, because, again, we're not all theologians or specially trained or anything like that. And yet, we're living in a time where the deck seems to be stacked against, but it's not stacked against God. It can't be. Because he's too much high, too much more powerful than that. How do we get ourselves in that worldview? How do we get ourselves in living on a daily basis in that way? I think that's what we're going to find out in Elijah, starting with today. Because we're going to find five characteristics, if you will, that happened in Elijah's life when the brook Cherith that he was sitting or uh, staying next to and the birds brought him meat and bread just like God promised, and all of a sudden, boop, it dries up. What about when the opportunities dry up? What's God up to? Is he up to something new? Is he up to something else? And I think the answer is yes, he is. How can we be ready to, to, be, to receive that? Well, we can be ready to receive that by having the characteristics that uh, this great and amazing and yet human God follower, Elijah, the kind of characteristics he have. And I think we'll find five of them in this story. I'm going to start at verse 7 of 1 Kings 17. Verse 7 of 1 Kings 17. And here's how it goes. But it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So remember, there's this, this famine going on, this horrible famine, three and a half years. And, and the brook dries up. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath which belongs to Sidon, 
and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide food for you. Now, the first thing you realize is when this, 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 uh, this brook drying up was no surprise probably to Elijah because it, 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 these canyons over there on, the, on the, either side of the Jordan River are, are called wadis. In fact, all across the Middle East, they call these dry canyons that sometimes have water, sometimes don't. They call them wadis. And some of them run year-round because they're fed by springs, but some of them don't. And when the water, like in this case, when the, the rain stops, then the water dries up. And, and so this happened, and, and so um, Elijah must have said, hmm, things are changing. But the way they're changing had to make Elijah first at least go, hmm, are you sure, God? Because God comes to him and says, okay, yeah, you probably figured this out. You need to move on. But where I want you to go is I want you to go to Zarephath. In fact, there's three sort of words in here, three sort of names that really make it clear that this is not something Elijah would have done on his own. But it also makes it clear that God is expanding his circle of goodness and world change beyond what Elijah would have imagined in his own mind, just like maybe he's doing right now. Because this Zarephath business is right between Tyre and Sidon. It's out on the, the Mediterranean coast. And it's uh, uh, this Tyre and Sidon region. If you want to think uh, of where it is today, if you know the map over there at all, think of Lebanon. It's not in Israel. It's in Lebanon, uh, the southern part of Lebanon, Hezbollah territory, by the way. And, and it's, it's, Tyre and Sidon is there. But, but Zarephath, the region of Tyre and Sidon, because it's partway through both of those, but that whole region was, uh, Tyre and Sidon specifically were mentioned, that God was going to wipe them off the map. It was prophesied, not in this time, but in the future. They were so, were so much evil going on in that part of the world that God says, I'm going to wipe you off the map. And your, your cities will be completely destroyed and thrown into the ocean and they will never, ever be rebuilt. And you know what? Today, if you go to the sites of Tyre and Sidon, they've never been rebuilt. In fact, in the last several generations, fishermen who still use nets in the Mediterranean have been known to dry their nets on those rocks. That's how barren the place is to this day. And that's, but that was a mark of how evil and dark it was. And then there's this other name, Sidon. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because that's Jezebelville, which means it was Baal town. Her dad, Eth Baal, he didn't even include this false god's name in his name. He was king of Sidon. And so it was that kind of dark place. And then God says, oh, don't worry about it. I've got a widow to help you out, which for Elijah was like, had to be like. Excuse me? I mean, nothing against widows, but what in the world could that, how could she help me? Oh, there's a widow there that's prepared to, to, to help you out, give you food, that sort of thing. You see, she was one of the least of these in that world. She was one of the least expected. See, in that world, when you had poverty, and that's what you had if you're, you were a woman and your spouse died and you weren't able to get remarried, and you had other mouths to feed like she did, Poverty was considered in that part of the world as it was in Israel the result of something you must have done wrong and ticked the gods off. That's why Jesus was so strong at it when the disciples uh, came up and asked Jesus a question about a blind man or a person that needed to be healed, a, a layman, I can't remember uh, who, which it was, but he said, uh, they said, so uh, which one is it that, uh, that caused this? Was it his parents or was it him that uh, had caused this? 
this problem, this horrible tragedy that he's got. And Jesus went off on him a little bit. Neither one is for the glory of God. Watch this. You see, that's, that was the case there. So Elijah, when he walked into town, if he, he had to know that when the village elders out at the gate of the, of the city of Zarephath, they watch him walk into town and start talking to this widow, must have gone, huh, not only is he Jewish, not only is he kind of funny looking, he talks to widows? You see, there was guilt by association associated with this. And yet God continually through the whole story of the Bible, but this story especially, wants us to understand that Jesus wants us to understand he has a soft spot for the busted, the blind, and the beaten. Even in the midst of the darkest culture and the, the downturn of the culture, the downturn of a society, he wants us to be like him and have a heart for people who are busted like that and hurting like that. So as, as Elijah enters Balesville and Gentile land here, which he never thought probably he would go, God wants him to focus on that. So he says, go to the widow. Which is, we shouldn't pass over this too quickly without pausing and looking back at ourselves and see how this applies. You know, we've, we've tried in the last number of years to step this up, and I think we have, and, but we, st we still have more to go to care for the poor and the, the people in need and the people that are marginalized and the people that are, uh, you know, rejected because of the color of their skin or whatever else. And be more aware of it and, 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 and uh, pray more about it and take action about it and put our money where our mouth is like we did with Overflow. I don't know if you uh, saw it. I didn't see it because I didn't read my newsletter when it came out. True Confessions. But their overflow offering, $8,700 came in this year. And that goes directly, thousands of dollars that go directly to, to people who are ex struggling with poverty in our own state through the Circles ministry. And, and uh, 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 single mothers uh, who are uh, you know, pregnant and the, the, the child that they're about to bring in the world ministers to them. And, and, and part of that then goes too to India. Where, uh, you know, people there, uh, India for Christ, people there uh, who are destitute right now. In fact, they're even worse off. I just got word recently from the, the pandemic, you know, the, the, the Christians that we're supporting there are, are already under persecution, but now they can't even work for, they don't, they don't have any way to get food because they're not allowed to work. Nobody's allowed to leave their home in that region because of the pandemic. And then if there's anybody in our country who has been thrown under the bus and need somebody to say, hey, we care about you, and so does Jesus? It's first responders. It's cops in the last year. And so we're supporting navigators and the first responders and the police officers and cops uh, and, uh, and, and uh, firefighters through that ministry. But it, that's not to pat ourselves on the back. That's just to say, hey, there's pathways going. And, and, and God's saying when one thing dries up, you need to move toward those things that I want you to, to move for. And... and um, the, the point is we're not called to run the other way when stuff happens or culture starts trying to stack stuff against us ideologically or whatever else, morally. We're not called to run the other way. Jo Elijah is called to run right smack dab into Immoralsville, Balesville. It's like the, the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, we are not of those who shrink back, no matter what's going on in society and the world. But we're also not called to look on, our, on, on our, the fallenness of the world and look on individual people with judgmental attitudes, which, you know, I'm not saying we're doing, we are doing that here, but I mean, I, I'm saying, I don't know about you, but I'm tempted sometimes. I mean, 
We look at the darkness and the fallenness of um, the people outside of the uh, people of God, and, and uh, we look at the, the darkness of our society, and what we need to do is have the attitude that people in the Scripture like Paul bring up. Remember what Paul says about people outside the family of God at the moment? In, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, verses 12 and 13, look at this. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? And he's not saying be judgmental in here. Please understand that. That's your gift. You should really ask for another spiritual gift. He's talking about discerning and helping each other, determining you know, the way forward and helping us see things maybe we don't see. That's what he's talking about. But when he first says, we're not to judge, because it's not our judge to, job to judge those outside. God will judge those outside, he said. It's only God. We don't take that job on ourselves because it's not our job. And so what, what, what this all sort of boils down to is the first characteristic of people living in a land in a dark time or a, a time when it's getting darker, let's put it that way, when things are more and more stacked against his people. What we're to do is, is do what Elijah did. We walk into the future not as, you know, sort of, meek and mild and scared, we walk into the future as his agents of powerful kindness and gracious change. That's how he's going to change the world through us. That's how he's going to change our culture. A powerful kind of kindness. A powerful, gracious change. He's the one that does the change anyway, but he'll give us the power to live in kindness and graciousness with people and yet have the answers when we need to have the answers. That's what the Spirit does day in and day out through his people, and that's how he wants to show his presence in this world, just like he, he did with Elijah. And you think about this woman of the least of these, the least likely person is what God asked him to go to in this dark place of Zarephath, Tyre and Sidon. And, and you know, maybe, th- maybe you've known some of the least of these. You know, maybe you've known somebody that you least expected to follow Jesus, and one day they come to you and they go, yeah, you know, I just thought I should tell you, you know, I've become a Christian. And you say, you've been what? No. Are you sure you know what that means? You know what I mean? That kind of thing? But I mean, honestly, I, I, over the years of being a pastor, over the years of being a pastor here, I have to say, that, that whole idea that the least likely the harder they fall. I mean, they're all in. They're either all in or all out. And, and I, I, I've continually heard stories of either people through this ministry or from other ministries, and they come to us, tell me these horrific stories of life before Jesus, and then it switches over. It's, it's amazing to me. I, I think of one guy I knew years ago, um, and uh, long enough ago that nobody knows who he is, so I can tell his story, but he was raised here in Oregon, but his family was so abusive. I mean, I have to say, even to this day, I've not heard of parents doing this to some, what, what they did to him. We'll call him Marty. Uh, that's not his name, but we'll call him Marty. What they did to Marty as a boy, as a little boy, a child. I, I'm not even going to say it because there's children in present here and maybe in the live feed. But here in Sweetness of Light, Oregon, that happened to him. So as soon as he could, he got out of the house, he joined the military, went into special forces. He was in one of the SEAL teams that was in Nicaragua when we weren't in Nicaragua back in the 80s. He got out, still tough as nails. He became a nurse. And uh, actually, that's how I came in contact with him. Sharon had the first contact. She, She shared her faith with him first. 
And then we became friends, and we went fishing together all the time, and um, it was, uh, we, we became really close friends. And I uh, tried to share my faith with him bit by bit as much as I thought he could handle, and then one day he just comes to me and goes, yeah, I just thought you should know I, I've accepted Christ, I, I'm a Christian. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, but I got to tell you about one thing I did a couple weeks ago before I actually prayed the prayer. I said, okay. He said, uh, you know, I'm not sure. this is probably bad evangelism, but, you know, I think God's okay with this because there was this, this girl, this teenager, um, about a 19-year-old, I think, that came into the unit, the intensive care unit where uh, they worked, and uh, it was in the papers. It was a horrible accident. I can't remember what it was, but the family of this, this girl was, was um, uh, believer, were believers, and so they were coming into the ICU and surrounding the, the bed and praying for her and anointing her and laying hands on her and so forth, and, and it was pretty loud, apparently, I mean, when they would pray. It was, I mean, they weren't trying to be loud, but everybody in the ICU could hear it, mostly. And one of the other male nurses in the process of that passed uh, my friend Marty uh, and walked by and said, can you believe this? Get a load of those people. And he says, I don't think this is probably a good evangelism tactic, but that really set me off because I was already thinking about becoming a Christian. And I grabbed him by the front of the shirt and I slammed him up against the wall and said, you don't get it, do you? Because, you know, if, and if you're never going to get it if you don't have a better attitude. <laughs> he said, that's probably not good evangelism technique. No, no, Marty, that's not good evangelism technique. And he had ups and downs. I don't even, I've lost track. He may have had a lot of downsides. I don't know. Because it's not all sweetness and light just because when, when you become a Christian. I mean, there are, there are challenges ahead. And even stuff from our past challenges us. Just in case you're thinking about following Christ, there's nothing better. But it's not like easy street and you're going to get a Mercedes tomorrow. So, I mean, but that's, that's the, the kind of people that he just loves to go after. Not that those of us who are a little bit cleaner living that he doesn't want us to, but those are the people that just, you know, blow your socks off. And that's what this woman was like. That's, and, and, and maybe she, you know, never, she probably didn't live a life where she never felt slighted again or she didn't go hungry. I mean, this, with a miracle that's going to happen only lasts till the famine is over. And, but by the end of the story, here's what she does know for sure. She will never be alone again because God's with her. And that's where we come to what actually happens when he arrives at Zarephath, verse 10, 1 Kings 17. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the entrance of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, give me a little water in a cup so that I may drink. As she was going to get it, she called, he called to her and said, And please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have found no food, only a handful of uh, flour in the bowl and a, a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks so that I may go in and prepare it for me and my son so that we may eat it and die. So she has nothing. And God asks her through Elijah, asks her for everything. But what we're going to see is in the process, he gives her so much more back beyond what could be expected. But it's the faith that is the linchpin. It's the faith that is the hinge of the story. But it's a wonderful story. But the reality is, is this story, uh, it's not all good news. Do you remember when Jesus told this story to his hometown people in Nazareth? It was not good news to them. Even though they were supposed to be Bible, Old Testament Bible believers. 
Here's what happens. Let me show it to you. In Luke chapter 4, it says, Truly I tell you, Jesus says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Just got to call this out. Jesus is using Elijah's time to overlay it on his, on his time to give an illustration of what was going on in his time. Isn't that great that Jesus gives us the precedent of doing what we're doing right now, taking Elijah's time, overlaying it onto our time, and saying, you know, there's some parallels here. There's some things that God wants us to learn about our time in Elijah's time. Just saying... Jesus gave us precedence for what we're doing right now. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet one uh, not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. He was a Syrian uh, commander. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him up to a brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What got them so ticked off? I mean, why would their favorite son, Jesus, which they were questioning already, but I mean, you'd think he was their favorite son. They take him up to the brow of this hill to shove him off. You know why they got ticked off? Because they got Jesus' point exactly. Jesus' point exactly was this. Yahweh God will continue to bless and continue to offer and continue to speak and continue and continue and continue until there's this point at which only he knows when a society has said, no God, no God, no God, where he says, fine, have it your way. And he was saying that Israel, in his time and their time, had been saying, no God, no God, no God. And Jesus is saying, fine, he's going to go to the Gentiles. Ultimately, he does with the gospel. But that's exactly what, what, uh, uh, what the point of this story is. And as of today, I mean, if, with so much darkness and so much canceling and so much out- outrage and so much crisis and so much violence and so much this and that, There will come a time, if it keeps going, where God says, fine, have it your way. And and, and he does it, it's clear from Scripture, he does it in order to show people how bad it can be without him, in order to bring us back to him. So there's actually an evangelistic uh, piece to that. But when God calls us, who are truly Christians, to go to our people, to people around us in our society, we are not to look away. That's the point of this. He calls Elijah to go where he didn't think that God would ever call him to go. God, are you sure? And he calls him to go during this hiatus of the, of the, the famine that he's predicted, and he just goes because that's what God asked him to do. What's he doing here? He's seeking out people in the world, in his world, who still have no hope. That's why God does this. And when I, when I say the word seek, uh, it might, that's my word, it might be better to say see, because we don't have to seek very far. I believe that God brings people into our sphere of influence, into our daily lives by a divine appointment who still need the hope of Jesus. I mean, they're all around us, and he's not calling us to minister to every single one of them, is he? He didn't minister to every single one of them. He's not asking us to save the world. He's saving the world. He's just simply asking us to have our eyes open to people around us that he brings by a divine uh, appointment, by divine entrance into our lives and crossing our paths that he 
will want us to share with or be encouraging to or pray. I, I think of one dear, dear old saint years ago when we were in a class and we were talking about something in the book of John. I can't even remember the, the particular uh, passage that we were looking at, but it, it, we, we were able to make the emphasis that you know, God calls us all to be evangelists and to speak the truth, the, the good news, because it's good news to people. We're not trying to make them sick. We're not trying to give them COVID or something. We're trying to speak good news. And uh, she was kind of crying afterwards, really sweet lady. And uh, those are always the ones that make pastors uh, uh, behave themselves. And uh, so I sat down next to her. I said, what's up? She says, the only one I know is my husband that doesn't know Jesus. And I've been praying for him, praying for him. And I've tried to speak him, but he can't. But he, but he won't listen to me, rather. And it hasn't worked over the years. And I just don't know anybody else. And so we kind of worked out a thing where, we, like this, we said, well, how about just when you go to the store or whatever, just, it's up to God then. It's not on your shoulders. It's up to him. Oh, and just to ask him to tell you. And pretty soon what started happening is she started um, meeting people at coffee shops and say, hey, could I pray for you? Because she'd hear, overhear something, uh, you know, at the, at the check stand or something or, 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 you know, paying for their coffee and somehow encouraging them and just letting them know, well, you know, I'm a Christian, and Jesus tells me I, I really need to love other people, so I just thought maybe it would be nice to give you coffee. And people's lives started being touched by this woman who, who had nobody supposedly around her other than her grumpy old husband who wouldn't listen. You see, this is a big deal biblically, that we care that we have God's heart for those who have no hope. And it's, it's sobering and yet it's inspiring to see that God comes to a point where even he says, okay, have it your way. And he withdraws his people from it. He withdraws Elijah or whatever, or does like he did with Tyre and Sidon, this prophecy. But he has not done that in our world. It's not up to us. That's up to him. It's not up to us to judge, as Paul says. It's up to him. And for now, we have this, this understanding that if he calls us to something, he's going to fill it. All we got to do is put one foot front of the other and get there and do whatever he tells us to do. And he's going to change the world one life at a time. He's going to renew our country. He's going to save lives, one life at a time. You see, Elijah reaches out, and as odd as it may see, be, have seemed to him, when the time comes, when the moment comes for him to say something, he says it as clearly and concisely as he can. Does he expect her to respond? We have no idea, but I would doubt it because of the context of where he is. Look at verse 13 of 1 Kings 17. However, Elijah said to her, do not fear, go. Do as you have said, do as you have said, just make me a little bread loaf from it the first, time, first and bring it to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the bowl of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil become empty until the day the Lord provides rain on the face of the earth. The famine is over. So she went and did everything in accordance with the word of Elijah, and she and she and he and her household, that is she and Elijah and her household, her son, ate for many days. And the bowl of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil become empty in accordance with the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. In Old Testament speak, the point is, is that, hey, he owns all the oil and the flour anyway. 
So he can give it whenever he wants. He can make sure something gets to her whenever he wants, and that's exactly what he does. But there's two truths in here from our side of things, from, the, from, from, our side, from Elijah's side and the widow's side of this miracle right here. And, and, and the two truths, I'll start with the second one in terms of the order that it shows up in, the, in the, this text. It, it, it's, it's just a three-letter conjunction, a three-letter uh, word that is hugely powerful and important in this story. And it is in verse 14 where it says, For, and note how it continues, For the Lord God of Israel says. The Lord God of Israel says. The Bible says. You know, I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know that the Bible is not at the top of most people's reading list in the world today and in America today. I know that. If we're Christians, it should be, but hopefully it is. But it's not the top of the list for most people. Although most people think because they went to church once when they were a kid, they think they know what it says. And, and I know that there are good, sound evangelical preachers, uh, some of them, few of them, running around or sitting in churches speaking saying, hey, don't use the phrase, the Bible says. Because nowadays people hear that as if you're trying to beat it in, oh, the Bible says. And I, we should never do that. We should never be people overhead with the Scripture. That's a misuse of Scripture. But in a culture that thinks they know it and they have no idea what they're saying, I mean, just think of the last celebrity or the last politician or the last public speaker that you heard issue a quotation from the Bible out of context to the point that it flipped it on its entire head and doesn't even mean that when the Bible says it. And they think they know the story. They think they know what they're rejecting, but they don't. So it's pretty hard for me to say, no, you should never say the Bible says. Okay? It's just, it just, it's pretty hard for me to say, yeah, don't beat them over the head, but we'd better find a way to say, hey, the Lord God has said, what do you think? In fact, just sort of as a side note, if things continue to feel like, or, you know, continue to go the way they feel like they're going now, where the, de the debt gets stacked more and more against Christians and, and you know, less and less religious liberty and public, being public about your faith kind of happens on different moral issues and whatever else, okay? If that happens, what are Christians to say? Well, what if we said something like, like, like Elijah here who says, just go make the loaf and see, okay? Because the Lord God says, but just go see. I mean, uh, what if we said something like, hey, what you're asking me to do by not talking about this, what you're asking me to do is to stop following Jesus when you ask me to stop believing what he said. Can we, can we just get that far? And I, you know what? I think in our culture, even most people would still say, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. We're not, we're not putting ourselves above anybody. I mean, here's Elijah, and he's talking in this dark, vile, evilville, and he's talking to a woman who knows nobody, nada, not one person who knows Yahweh God of the Bible. Not one person. And he says, hey, you know, what's interesting? The Bible says. The Lord God says. He told me. I mean, that's stunning when you think about it. And that relates to the second truth I want us to pull out of here. And that has to do with verse 13. Do not be afraid. The reality is in our society and in that society and probably both Elijah and this widow, at some level, we're afraid. We're all afraid. It, it, none of us are, uh, even the ones that are really good at faking it, 
are immune to fear, especially in a pandemic, especially in a society that goes sideways and you wonder if there's going to be a place for you anymore. And, 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 and notice this woman who goes and does it just based on the fact that this crazy-looking Jewish prophet says to her, yeah, my God says it's okay. It's going to be all right. I mean, is that a, the epitome of faith or what? I mean, she backs her truck right up to the chasm of eternity and dumps all her life into it and says, well, might as well give it a try. And that's, that's some crazy faith right there. And what an example of faith. But notice what Elijah says. He says, don't be afraid, just go and do. I know this is crazy, I know it's crazy, but God is moving right now, and you'll see. Just go and do it. That's the attitude that overcomes the fear. What is that? That's faithfulness. That's not having it all together. That's not having so much belief that you can overpower everything in your way. What's faithfulness? It's belief. It's the belief that God is with me and that he wants me to move forward in this and, and live for him in this world, so I'm just going to do it and see what he does. That's what faithfulness is. It's not having all the answers all the time. It's waiting for him to give you the answers when you need them sometimes. It, and, you know, it says that God is the author and perfecter of our faith in the New Testament. So what does that mean? That means he's the author and the perfecter of our faithfulness. We get our faithfulness from him. Just like John in 1 John says, we love him because he first loved us. That means we also, we are faithful to him because he was first faithful to us. So it means taking whatever that is that we have of of that and and as God's people plow past the fear because that has more power than fear. If there's something Christians got to know, everybody's got to know this, but Christians of all people need to know this and should know this, it's this. In our culture and our society, everybody's afraid, but there are more powerful things than fear in this world. And that power is the faithfulness of those who follow him. And that plows right past the faith. That's one of the main characteristics of people who follow him. And don't forget, there's something amazing about this miracle that God is about to do, that every morning she gets up and there's more oil and there's more yeast. I mean, uh, more flour. Every single morning. Every single morning, God's grace is new. Every morning, there he is again. It's just like the sun rising. There he is again. <laughs> and, and that kind of faithfulness of saying, God, you've given me enough faith for this day. I'll worry about tomorrow and tomorrow. There's something about that that plows right past the fear. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, is that we and Elijah and anybody else will never really surpass the faith of this woman. I mean, we may know philosophy, we may know more apologetics, we may know more theology. We certainly have more Bible verses in our heads and have more Bibles on our shelves. Absolutely. But we will never get past the faith here that leans all her weight into this partially unknown, but trusting and daring to believe in this God. And when we do that same kind of living each day and getting up and saying, Jesus, I don't know what's going to happen today, or I don't know what you're going to do with this problem or that problem, but I know that you have something to do with it, and I know you want to help me and you want to be with me in it, so would you just show me where you are? And leaning into that and and weighing in on that and trusting, sometimes the only thing you've got to trust is Jesus saying, I will never leave you, forsake you. Or Jesus saying, I will never allow anyone to pluck you out of my hand. Now I've got you. And trusting that and daring to believe that and moving forward into the future, whatever that future is he's called you to. And that's exactly the attitude that Elijah shows us here too. 
He doesn't think of himself beyond this woman. He sees this horrible situation, and then he sees her faith. He doesn't think of himself as being something more than that, more than her in some way. Remember, James says he's a human being. Yes, he will be the great Elijah that God will write into his story all the way to Revelation and the maps. That's true. That he will write into the story in such a way that Jesus can apply his life to his time and that we can apply to our life in, in, in our time. But he's not there yet. He's just starting out. But then something really bad happens that somehow, you know, you begin, it had to be a head scratcher for these people and, and, and a heartbreaker to be sure. Look what happens, verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, this is apparently uh, some, some months later, became sick and his condition became very grave until at the end he was no longer breathing, which means he was dead. So she said to Elijah, why is my business any of yours, you man of God? She's not saying that in a positive way. She's saying that of somebody who's got this like, image of the man of God on you. Yet you have, you have come to me to bring my wrongdoing to remembrance and put my son to death? And he said to her, give me your son. What else is he going to say? Then he took him from her arms and carried him up the, uh, to the upstairs room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And watch this. And he called out to God. If you're circling anything or underlining, called out to God. And said, Lord, my God, have you also brought catastrophe upon the widow with whom I am staying? Like, is she right? Causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and called out to God, same word, saying it again, and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life return to him. You see, the foremost thing you notice about that story and those, those words, particularly the second half, is that it says the exact same thing twice about the super prophet, so-called, of Elijah. He cries out to God. And in the Hebrew, I've told you this before, when you put the same word or the same phrase one time and then you set it up exactly the same the next time with a little bit different language coming after it, it means to amplify it. This was not, Elijah called out to God quietly and peacefully. No, she could hear him. It means Elijah cried out to God. And we see that in the second because when the second one he says, please, is put in there. That's what your translation is trying to tell you, that this was like, God, why? Please, am I the problem here? You told me to come here. You know, all he is left with is this prayer here. I mean, he doesn't have a bunch of holy abracadabra. He doesn't have a hundred bucks in his back pocket and say, oh, that's too bad. Hey, can I give you a hundred bucks at least? He doesn't have some razzmatazz or some, you know, razzle-dazzle, some little trick, some smoke and poof. Nope, got none of that. He's no candidate for super prophet at this point yet. All he's got is prayer. And so he's been reduced to the level of a servant at this point, a servant of God and a servant of this woman. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's a lot like what Paul says about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember that? He prays three times, God, please take it away. God, please take it away. God, please take it away. And then God tells him, I'm not going to take it away. I know it's tough, but here's what you need to know. That's your weakness, and in your weakness, my strength is strong. 
So I'm going to provide for you greater than I would if I just simply took away the physical ailment that you got. Isn't that interesting? That's exactly what Elijah is reduced to. In other words, Yahweh has reduced his servant to weakness, and now it's like he's saying, okay, now we can really work with this. Now we can get going. Elijah, thank you for taking the spot. Watch this. And so what does Elijah do? He prays, 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 prays. Did he have an inkling of that? I think he knew who God was. It didn't make sense to him why this would happen, but he knew God knew, and he knew that God could do something, so he cries out from the bottom of his soul. And how is he crying out? He's crying out, he's praying like we should pray in our time, in this moment, and this is the fourth characteristic, praying, admitting beyond what Christ has done for us that we are not so different from others. We're the same. Even our secular friends, even our Atheist friends who chew on Richard Dawkins' pages for breakfast. Those are the friends. Even God says that I have, what, what, what you have, the wonders that you have in your life are because of what Christ has done for you. So we're not elevating ourselves over anyone. We are simply his servants. And that's the definition of what James says when he talks about, you know, the prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he's talking about Elijah here in this story, really. In James chapter 5, we looked at it three or four weeks ago, where he says what happens is, is when that kind of person prays, God does stuff. Not, not the super prophet, but the one who is simply connected and to God and praying to God and knows that this can't be, that this, this God must be up to something. And that's how we make our way through the maze of whatever happens in the future. We find the way through when we open our hearts to God and say, God, I know I'm, I'm not, don't deserve any better. I don't deserve your salvation, let alone anything else. Uh, but God, would you do something in this world before these people that don't even know you yet who are in such desperate need of hope? And you know what's wondrous about the way Scripture is written? I didn't tell you this before, but this is the perfect time to tell you. The wondrous thing about the way Scripture is written is it says that we who are believers who know Jesus, we've got more at our disposal in terms of times like these than Elijah did. The reason I kind of came to my mind and and, and realized that was a week ago, uh, we started... The, book of, uh, the, the story of Elijah. There's no book, but the story of Elijah in First and Second Kings. And guess what uh, my reading plan, I read through the Bible in one year, okay? I'm reading through that. I'm reading through the Bible in year, one year, 2020. But please understand, I didn't start till May. I'm not so slow that I'm only halfway through the Bible at the first of the year. I didn't start till May, okay? So uh, I, I don't know why that's important for you to know that. But, but so I, last Friday, here we come to 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 2 as a part of the reading plan for this week. That's the story of Elijah at this time. And the Bible in one year is written uh, by the man who helped um, create and has been the the main uh, force behind the Alpha Ministry uh, that has reached millions and millions of people that don't know Jesus uh, in uh, the world in the last 20, 30 years. And he's now the pastor or the vicar or whatever they call him uh, for the last 20 years at HTB uh, 
uh, London, which is uh, Holy Trinity Church Brompton. It's an Anglican church, evangelical Anglican church. And he, he uh, has continued to work in Alpha and so forth. But he writes this devotional. And at the beginning of each, each day, he's got a little summary of what the passages are that you're going to read and what they mean. And i got to show you how he summarizes the, the Elijah story because it's powerful. Look at this. The account of Elijah and his extraordinary power to call down fire from heaven and to divide the waters, we'll see the, both of those things, should not or should be read in the light of the New Testament. Elijah prefigured John the Baptist. John ministered, quote, in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's a quote from Jesus in Luke, or a quote from the angel to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 14. That's from God himself to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's parents. In the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus says that you are better off than Elijah or Elisha. He says, among those born of women, there has not uh, risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, the Elijah who was to come. Yet he goes on, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, Matthew eleven eleven. Every Christian is in a better position than Elijah and John the Baptist for at least two reasons. And watch this. First, you are in a better position to tell the good news about Jesus, because now we know the good news. We've got the New Testament. Second, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. Every Christian, quote, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, unquote, has the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and the most powerful message in the world. You and I have got that, the, 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 the good news in the scriptures, we've seen how it plays out. Elijah didn't have that. John the Baptist didn't have that. And we've got the Holy Spirit, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same way. The Spirit of God was talking to them, yes, but we have the Holy Spirit living in us to tell us, yep, that's a divine appointment there. Maybe you should just mention that you're praying for that person. We have that. That's more than they had. You see, I got to tell you, as 2020 bleeds on into 2021, I look forward to 2021, and I, it may not be easy. I'm not saying it's going to be yippy-skippy, but I'm not worried about our church one iota because that's true. We've got the spirit that was teaching and speaking through to Elijah. We have him living in us, and we have the good news of Jesus to boot. You see, that's where uh, we find this final support of our faith, this final characteristic, working itself out in these last few verses of the story, which we can't avoid uh, finishing, because we, not only because we love happy endings, but because you got to see how this turns out, don't you? Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the boy returned to him, and he revived and Elijah took the boy and brought him down from the upstairs room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. <laughs> he probably said, see, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know. Maybe Elijah said, now I know too. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, that in your mouth is truth. See, now I know. Now I know the truth. Because God has shown it to me through you. 
That's how it happens every time. It's not us. It's not the, just saying the right words and just getting it down just right. No, it's the Holy Spirit of God and the power of the good news. You see, it's pretty clear that Elijah was not some self-assured holy man that trotted into Zarephath and said, you lucky woman, I'm staying at your house. Nope. And like the rest of us, he still had some learning to do to grow into the great man that he would be, the great prophet, the great Elijah who would be written into God's story to the end of time. You see, Elijah is in a very similar place that we are in. When people are asking some important, and Christians are asking some important rhetorical questions about God. We're all answering in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of the turmoil in the culture. It's sort of along the lines of what one Old Testament professor who's written some comments on Elijah's story his name's Ian Proven. Ian Proven is a professor of Old Testament at Regent College. He says a very, I think he succinctly puts the questions right out there. Now he answers them later, but I'm just going to show you the questions. Here's what he says: It is one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can he, that is Yahweh, do anything with the death that has already clamped its its jaws, tight clamped its jaws, and swallowed the victim up? Can he act across the border from Israel? He can ask. Can he act across the border from Israel in Sidon? But is there a border that he ultimately cannot cross? A kingdom in which he can, has no power. When he is faced with Mot, Mot was the death god of the underworld of uh, Canaanite mythology, which is why they had human sacrifice, by the way. When he is faced with Mot, must the Lord, that is Yahweh, all caps, like Baal, bow the knee? You see, Elijah's asking some questions. God, why did you let this happen? You and I are asking some questions in our time. So can God, can God bust through these days of chaos and anxiety and screaming and death? Can he, can he show us the way through? And I imagine God is doing now what I think he was doing when Elijah was up in that room saying, please, God, and answering this woman's question, who is this guy and what is God, your God up to? Can you do anything about this, the worst thing that I've ever seen in my life? I think God is leaning over and saying, I dare you to believe I can. Because what God wants to do is he, he wants to say yes, and the answer is yes. He can do all of those things, and he will do all of those things. But he wants to do it through his people. He wants to show his presence through his family to the point that as we lean into it, he takes care of the rest. And as the, the, the world that is without hope looking and saying, but those people have hope and they're scratching their heads. How come? That doesn't make any sense because I don't believe that stuff, but they sure do. You see, the truth that this woman saw is clear in this story. That, that God is showing through Elijah, and he wants to show that truth through us. And how does he do that? Through a bunch of razzmatazz? No, he didn't even do that through Elijah. He wants to show his truth through us by daily living into the truth that we already know, and then in unexpected ways, you will see him showing the way through. Just live the truth you already know, and you'll learn more truth just like this woman. 
One day she needed one bit of truth, and the next day she needed another bit of truth, and she said, now I know the truth. This is a God that doesn't quit. You see, Elijah's faith in the midst of all this uncertainty in this uncertain land shows that God's life-giving power and God's compassion, life-giving compassion and God's watchfulness over all things. And when he's ready to make his move, he just wants us to be open to it. And the only way to do that is to live day by day, moment by moment, the truth that you already know and live into that. It's kind of like what, what Moses was trying to tell the Israelites at the end of his life when he gave those three great sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, you know, remember God gave you the, the manna in the desert and you hated it for a while, man. You're eating this stuff and you're getting tired of it, but God provided every day. And you're saying, when's God going to do something else? So then he gave you some quail, some meat to eat, and he did that and you got tired of that. When's God going to do something? And so, you know, it was just sort of this daily thing. He kept giving it to you. And the reason he did that was so he could humble you, yes, but not so he could hurt you. So he could take certain things away so he could get you to believe and to go and to move in a different direction. To get you to see who he really was. So that in the end, he could do greater good for you because he had humbled you. It's exactly the same thing that Paul is trying to say in that famous verse that we all love, Romans 8.28, about those who love God. For those who are in love with God, he will do. He will work all circumstances together for the good, ultimately. But he's got to get us in the place where he can do that. And the place that, that he can do that is when we live day by day into the truth we know. Which leads us to the final thoughts today, the sort of the summary statements, hopefully practical summary statements for you and I. In fact, take a picture of this because they won't be up there long enough uh, for you to write them all down. They're kind of wordy today. But if you take all these five characteristics that Elijah has shown us, the first one is you focus on being Christian in this world. What does that mean? It means living the truth day by day that you already know. Living into being Christian, that I am Christian. And, and you know that, that the fruit of the Spirit, right up front, has, has love, joy, peace, kindness. So live into the graciousness and the kindness of God that he has shown you day by day, moment by moment. And if he needs you to speak up, he needs you to say something, he'll reveal that to you. Secondly, seek out people without hope. And like I said, it's asking God to open the eyes of your heart to the people that are all around you, that he has brought to you, that have no hope, that he wants you to pray for or think about or care for. It may be even a silent prayer that you don't even speak to them, but he's, he's got them in your world and that he'll run them by somebody else, some other believer in the day that need, he needs to pray. And then that final person that needs to be speaking to them, whatever, it's up to him how he works that. And then pray, pray, pray. Cry out to God in light of what Jesus has done for you. Knowing that he has done what he has done for you, cry out to God that he would do it again. And he'd do it again. And while we're praying, let's honor what we're said, told by officials in our land today. Let's pray for our government leaders nationally and locally and statewide that are making decisions for our lives, the decision makers. Let's pray for them. I mean, we know that we are following a higher power. That doesn't mean we diss governmental power, mm -mm. but it means that we follow a higher power, which says, hey, I want you to pray for those because they've got the, at least they think they got the world on their shoulders. I mean, I'm holding it up, God would say, but, but you know there's a higher thing going on here. And so you live into that and pray, pray, pray. And then finally, live the truth you know and keep walking into the future into 2021 with his people, 
Remember those three conversions to God, to his church, and to his cause. We're all in that. You see, a lot of people are saying, hey, we're all in this together. They've been saying it over and over again on the television. Eh, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. We're not together. But we are in this together if we're believers. And that's where we live that out and keep walking and help each other keep walking. We're living the truth we know. And you know, our, our new president has called for unity. He's called us to, to unity. And you know what? That's something we Christians should pray for all the time anyway. I mean, I know that, you know, there will be questions as, as things play out in this year. Are the decisions being made really meant for unity? Or are they meant trying to get everybody in line? I know all that's true. I know, I know that's all true. But again, there's this higher thing going on. And th- those things down here are still out of our hands. The, the, the things that are happening and those decisions that are being made are, are out of our hands. So the reality is, is that we, there are things that aren't out of our hands. And one of the things is, is we can still talk directly to God and ask him through, in the name of Jesus, God, unify people. That we have a higher calling. We can pray about that. Just as, as uh, uh, Hebrews 11 says, we're searching for a greater city, a, a, a more wondrous city than the, the city that we're even leaving here, living in here. That doesn't mean we leave this one behind or don't care about people in it or care about it. But if we concentrate on day by day being Christian and living by the power of his spirit, he will take care of the rest. And just like this woman, this widow, we will find ourselves at unexpected moments blown away by the truth of who he is right now in our world, in our lives, at this time. And I think that's what we've got to think about in these early days of 2021. In fact, let's pray about it right now. Our loving Father God, thank you for sending us Jesus. Thank you for sending us the good news. Thank you for giving us your word. That those two things, the good news and the spirit of God, give us more options, give us more possibility, give us more ways to live in this world and understanding about it, and more connection with you than even Elijah had. Help us to see it. We do pray that you'd unify our country, that you'd cause a great unification around you, first of all, but then toward each other. And drops, get us to drop the outrage and change lives and bring that renewal that only you can. It's been through history, Lord. We know, we've watched history, watched you in it, that every time things get dicey like this that's when you make your move and it's not so unprecedented it's not unprecedented to you so Lord we just pray that you do that and help us in the meantime think personal think local think about how are we going to live into it how can we simply live day by day as your people in this world with our eyes open we love you Lord Jesus we thank you for being here with us and being with us tomorrow and the next day and the next day and forgiving us one another too. It's in your name we pray. Amen.